You are listening to the Bethel Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Bethel Church in Yale, South Dakota. We've been working our way through the Gospel of John. So if you would turn to John chapter 4 with me this morning. John chapter 4, we find ourselves uh, really focusing our attention on verses 7 through 14. We kind of uh, dealt with the first six verses there, uh, but all of this is really part of, of one big story. I'm not going to take time. I did last week. I'm not going to take time to, to read it all uh, this morning, but I do want to give us some context as we're going through this. So I would start at verse 1 in chapter 4. So if you would uh, stand with me as we honor the, the reading of Scripture together. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and, ma- and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us a well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, as we once again approach your word, Lord, I pray that that you would work in this moment that your spirit would guide us and help us. Lord, that we would be guided to to truth, that that we would see this, the, the truth, and it would be relevant to our lives, mold us, shape us into the people that you would have us be, that we might be more effective in our mission to make disciples. Lord, I pray that, that you would work in a tremendous way here this morning, do more than we could ever ask or imagine. And Lord, if, if there is one here or, or is listening that, that does not know you, or maybe they're, they're running from you, maybe they're rebelling, Lord, I pray that you would draw them back. And I pray that they would put their faith and trust in you and that they would that they would repent and come home. Lord, we pray all of these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. In Philadelphia, I've never been there, but I've heard that there is a, a river there called the Skokul River. And there is a section of that river where there is boathouses that line the river. And if you look across from that area where there's these boathouses, you'll see this statue of a pilgrim standing there with a Bible under his arm. 
And if you get out of your car and start exploring that area, you'll find a, a stream that empties into the Skokul River. And if you follow that stream, there's a trail there, and, and not too far, you'll find the source of that stream. It's a, and there's a, an inscription over that spring that was placed there by the city government some time ago. And it reads this. Whoever drinks of this water shall thirst again. Of course, that saying is true. And there are probably some that wonder why it is there. You would have to be a, a fool, though, to deny the statement. Everybody knows that when you drink of that spring, or any spring for that matter, that you will thirst again. Of course, although we know that that is only half of the quotation, really that comes from verse 13, but to look at the whole quote, you need to look at verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What a marvelous text when you think about it. Here you have by this river the, the source of, of water that is, is trickling in and a stream coming in and this saying to remind us whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, right? This is fresh flowing water. This is the, the source. But yet you can even drink of that great water and you will thirst again. As we look at this text, we need to start, I think, where the, the text does with Jesus, and then we'll move to the woman, and then we'll get to the, the water. So that's the, the flow of the text, right? The pun, get the pun to flow. Um, I worked hard on that. Those aren't really points. But it is the it is it is the flow of, of the text. You'll see that I think as we as we move through here. So Jesus, right? Jesus is on the way to, to Galilee, and we're told in, in verse six that he was he was weary from his journey. He was he was thirsty. I, I don't know if you've ever experienced great thirst. You know, I, I've been I've been thirsty, or what I thought was thirsty but I don't think I've ever really known what it is to, to truly thirst. In fact, having something to drink is often something that we very much take for granted. In the Middle East, even today, there are places that uh, one wouldn't dare drink the water. One person that I read said that when he was there, there was a time in which he got very uncomfortable and felt a little desperate because where he was and where he was going through, there was no water to drink. And when he finally arrived at a place where there was drinking water, he said there was just this, this relief. Just an experience, right, that, that people in America, like us, we, we don't really have, like they do in other parts of the world. To make that point even more, just think about what water symbolizes. It symbolizes beauty. It symbolizes uh, destruction, right, in great quantities, like a, a flood, but for us, what it usually doesn't symbolize is life. In a culture where water was this important, that when people found it, they, 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 they had this great sense of, of relief. There was this great dependence upon it. We could see how it might symbolize something different for them. It might come to, to more symbolize life than it does for us. Now, I think that even at this point, as we start thinking about this, this text, you, you can see the, the overall point, right? The umbrella point right from the onset when we start thinking about Jesus' conversation with this, this woman. And, and I'll just say it right up, right up front. I'll kind of put the, I'll kind of put the, the main point 
right before you at the onset here, and that is Jesus is making the point that he is just as necessary for spiritual life as water is for physical life. Jesus is just as necessary for spiritual life as water is for physical life. But let's back up. Jesus is with his disciples. He's traveling from the, the southern area of Israel, known as the, in the lower, lower Jordan River area uh, in Judea. He's going up to Galilee, and verse 4 tells us that he had to travel through Samaria. That's how, that's how the Bible says it. But the interesting thing here is that that isn't totally true geographically. From the place that Jesus and his disciples were in the lower Jordan River, there were actually two routes that one could take to Galilee. One went on the eastern side of the Jordan River to the northern end of the valley, as it were, and they crossed into to Galilee there. This is the, the route that Orthodox Jews would have taken. It was longer, but it avoided Samaria. And to make things very clear, they did that because of their hostility toward the Samaritans. So when John said that he had to pass through Samaria, the, the clear meaning here is that Jesus needed to go to Samaria because of this divine appointment that he had with this woman at the well. He, he needed to go through there. This was his mission. John knew that they could have went the longer way, but this was important to Jesus. They had to go. And just so we're on the same page here, it was important not only because Jesus was a Jew and he spoke to a Samaritan. Not only that Jesus was an example of loving those who are different than we are. Those things are true, but that isn't why Jesus had to go. Jesus went because it was in this conversation that he had with this woman that we see actually countless people come to faith in Jesus Christ. So yes, Jesus is an example of how we treat those who are ethnically different than we are. But his example was to love her enough to share the gospel with her. And in sharing the gospel with her, she in turn went home to her community and shared the gospel with other people who came to Jesus and heard the gospel message for themselves and came to faith. So Jesus went through Samaria. It was about noon, the second day of traveling. And he comes to this place and he was tired from his journey. And he stays at the foot of the, the hill leading up to Sychar on, on the edge of Jacob's well. The disciples then go off into the city to buy something to eat while Jesus stays there and rests. Now Jesus was human completely human, so it shouldn't sound strange to our ears that Jesus was tired and he rested. But it is interesting that he rested where he did. He could have found a, a cooler place to rest, but he was there because he knew that this would be the place of this divine appointment. There was, there was no randomness here. There was a a devotional writer by the name of Jeffrey Bull, and he was a, a missionary to China, and he was imprisoned on the Tibetan border from 1950 to 1953, and he was later released, and he said this about Jesus's encounter with this woman at the well. He says, and I quote, if she could have just seen then what Jesus saw, she would have glimpsed another noonday when the sun would mourn in blackness and this same stranger would cry out from the Roman cross, I thirst. She would have seen him in the shadow of a great rock in a weary land, the smitten Christ from whom the living waters flow. He was thirstier than she knew. 
He was speaking for the heart of God. He was moving in the travail of his soul. And he looked for satisfaction in the restoration of this sin-scarred woman. I, I think it's interesting the connection that Bill makes between Jesus' thirst here, asking the, the woman for a drink, and the statement on the cross in which Jesus said, I thirst. And, and I think the question is, well, what do we make of that? Do we make anything? Of course, we shouldn't read into that too much, but I do think the point that Bull and others are making here is a really good one, and that is that when Jesus took on humanity, he experienced all that we experience. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He wept at the loss of a friend. He felt pain. But what is the overarching purpose or point of the incarnation. Why did Jesus take on flesh? The point of the incarnation was to redeem fallen humanity. The point of him taking on humanity and suffering in that way and going through the, the extreme thirst and the hunger and all of that was to redeem fallen humanity. And we see that here. As another writer puts it, so if Jesus was weary, thirsty, hot, and on the road to even greater suffering, he was weary and hot for your sake and mine. In other words, what prompted Jesus' conversation with this woman was first and foremost his mission, to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus was, was weary here, and he met the woman. He was hot, and he was tired. He was, he was suffering to a degree. But he needed to do this. It was worth it. This was who he was. And in this we see a, a glimpse of the fact that Jesus later was the one who would suffer the most. He suffered for Nicodemus. He suffered for this woman. He suffered for every person that would place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And his weariness here is a glimpse of that. It points ahead to greater suffering on our behalf. Now when it comes to the, the flow of the text, we see the, a hot and weary Jesus. And we notice that the point of, of Jesus taking on flesh was to, to redeem fallen humanity. And there's a, another picture here as the text flows, and that is of this, this woman that Jesus has a conversation with at the well. You see, Jesus is there because he's on mission. He's there to, to meet this woman. And then she is there. And then we see the conversation unfold. Someone asked me once, how did the woman know that Jesus was a Jew when he asked for a drink? How would have she known that, for instance, it's quite possible that the disciples were on their way to town and she was coming uh, to the well? Maybe they met. Did she know they were Jews? And the answer is she would have known right away. It would have been obvious by their dress. But whatever the case in the events leading up to the woman seeing Jesus at the well, whatever it is in her story, coming up to that point in who she was, she recognized Jesus right away as being a Jew. And as she recognized Jesus being a Jew, she was silent. She didn't speak to, to Jesus. It, it was Jesus that made the request from her, and Jesus asked her for a drink. It's then that she remarks that it is unheard of that a Jew would ask something like that from a Samaritan woman. Of course, Jesus uses this to arouse her curiosity further by offering her a new kind of water, living water, that would be a, a spring of water within her that would well up to eternal life. But think about this experience for a moment. This is really how it is in the spiritual world. It is Jesus that always comes to us first. If we were left to ourselves, and this is important, if we were left to ourselves, we would have left Jesus sitting on 
the edge of the well forever. That's who we are. Jesus comes to us first. So it's significant that Jesus speaks to the woman first. Whatever it was, the woman's experience with the Jews, the events leading up to Jesus, perhaps she saw uh, the, the disciples on the road walking down. A lot of people think that probably did happen, uh, the way that, that things were there. Um, the disciples wouldn't have gotten out of the way. They would have made her step to the side while they walked, and then she would have got. You know, whatever it is, right, just the, the culture of the day, all of that, the woman was, was going about her business. She was there to get her water, and it was Jesus in that moment that asked her for a drink. It wasn't her that asked Jesus if she could get him a drink. And I think that is significant. Let me see if I can make another connection here related to this point. If you would, uh, take in, in your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. There is a passage here that, that some of us might have actually been thinking about as we've been uh, talking about this. In, in Jesus asking this woman for a drink, if you're there in Matthew 25, just scroll down to verse uh, 31, say. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all of the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. For I was thirsty, and what? You gave me something to drink. I think you can see why I bring this text up. What's the difference in this text between the sheep and the goats? Those that are invited into the, the presence of God to inherit the, the kingdom and those who are sent away to the place that was prepared for the devil and his angels where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's the difference? Well, it says here that when Jesus was thirsty, they gave him something to drink. If we keep reading, these, these blessed ones will say, wait a minute, when did we see you thirsty? And when did we give you something to drink? And Jesus will say something on the lines of, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. Verse 40. Jesus then tells the other group, depart from me to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Why? Because when he was thirsty, they gave him no drink. This text has become very confusing to some. It really seems that uh, the, the basis of our justification, the basis of our being made right with God in the end, is how we have treated others. Some have said, well, let's handle it this way. There is our justification before God, our being made right before God. And, and then there's this other kind of justification. There's this other kind of being made right God, right? So the former is by faith in Christ. We're made right with God by faith in, in Christ Jesus. So we're justified by faith. That's how Paul talks about it in Romans. And then there's, there's got to be a future justification, you know, our entrance into heaven then depends on this future justification. And that, in that, we're justified by our works. It's a little bit confusing, doesn't it? It does sound like here at the final judgment that our entrance into heaven does depend on our works. In other words, God looks at one's works and it's on the basis of their works, giving something to drink, feeding the poor, whatever, that they enter heaven. So then, the text could be speaking about a second 
justification or a final justification. John Piper has gotten himself in a lot of trouble by saying that we are justified by our works when it comes to our entrance into heaven. He says we're made right with God through our faith, by God's grace. In other words, we're justified by faith in Christ, but when it comes to our our final justification, that is on the basis of works. Now, the problem here is that one can't have it both ways. I I love Piper, um, but he's wrong on this. Passages passages of Scripture like this must be understood in light of Scripture's teaching as a whole. For instance, this passage says in Matthew 25, says nothing about justification by faith. In fact, at best, it implies that justification, not just final justification, it implies that justification is by works. You enter into God's presence based on what you have done. Ephesians 2, on the other hand, says nothing about a final justification by works, but speaks very clearly about justification being made or being made right with God is on the basis of God's grace alone through our faith. But then you you keep going in your mind in that passage and you remember that justification by faith alone is connected to good works that the believer walks in, that God has prepared for that person to to do. Ephesians 2, uh, 10. No mention of final justification based on our works in that text. And if there was ever a place to speak of it, Ephesians 2 would have been the place. There are other passages that speak of judgment being based on works. Of course, I find it fascinating, though, that in Matthew 25... The believers here have no idea when they did these things that they were doing things that that merited them eternal life. In other words, it wasn't the amount of things that they did that mattered. It wasn't as if there were some sort of cosmic scales set up that they were judged by their works. They had no idea that anything was even on the scale. The fact is, for the believer, they realize that they are always unworthy of being counted righteous. We would think something like this on Judgment Day. I'm going into the eternal rest that you have prepared me to spend eternity in. Why? I'm not that good of a person. In fact, I have failed more times than I could count. Why would you do that for me? I don't deserve it. I think that's the basis of the believer's question here. When have we done these things? When have we given you something to drink? All these passages need to be understood in light of the Bible's teaching concerning what's called imputation. Uh, imputation is an important doctrine, and, and, but don't let it frighten you. Don't let the word frighten you. It's a, a fancy word that speaks of Jesus' perfect righteousness being imputed or covering the believer. And that comes by faith. In other words, we are justified or made right with God because of Jesus' perfect obedience. And then his perfect obedience covers us. His perfect righteousness covers us. It was given to us. It was imputed to us when we place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Likewise, then, when one places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the the reverse is true. Our sins are, are given to him imputed to Jesus, and he takes our sins and he deals with them on the cross, throwing them as far as the east is from the west. So we get to heaven based on Jesus' work, not our own. So what do we do with Matthew 25 Well, let me give you three things to remember when it comes to this text. The first 
is that Jesus never says here that the grounds or basis of our entrance into heaven is what we have done. He says only that the believer has done these things. Don't read into it more than it is there. Secondly, a proper understanding of imputation here would lead the believer to recognize that if they were to be let into heaven based on their actions alone, there's no way they would be let in. But when Jesus' obedience covers our own, when God looks at us and sees the perfect obedience of his Son, it is on that basis that we are led into heaven and we are worthy of the kingdom that he has prepared for us before the foundation of the world. Third, justification and good works are connected. Don't misunderstand that. And I think Jesus is making this point that those who are justified and made right before God will live differently. They will walk in good works that were prepared for them to walk in. But get this right. Good works are the product of justification, not the basis of it. Not in any regard. I bring this up because I said that if it were us on our own, we would have left Jesus sitting there on the well waiting for a drink eternally. We would have never done anything to merit what Jesus has done for us, not even initiating the conversation. Jesus always comes to us first. We give him a drink because he asked for it. Our salvation is found in what Christ has done for us, not what we have done. And it is Christ who always comes to us first in that process. Always. We attribute nothing to our salvation except our sin. So, Jesus offers the woman here living water. I think the flow of the conversation is, is extremely interesting. If you would have known who is asking you, you would have asked me, he would have given you living water. But what does that mean? Well, in a literal way of understanding that phrase and how the woman would have understood it, the, the phrase living water meant water that was flowing as opposed to water that was stagnant. Water that was in a well. So flowing water as opposed to well water. Of course, flowing or living water was better. And Jesus said that he could give her this. But they were not on the same page. <laughs> Jesus was not speaking of a stream of clean drinking water, but the woman's interest here was piqued, and she wanted to know where he had found it. But it seems like she doesn't really believe him, though, right? If, if there was something better, if there was flowing, clean, drinking water, then why was Jacob's well here, right? Jacob would have... Why would Jacob dig a well that was 100 feet deep when there was flowing water that was able to drink right there? It didn't make any sense to her. But if she was thinking about what Jesus was talking about spiritually, she would have understood things differently because in the Old Testament, God is pictured as the one who alone can supply living water to satisfy the thirst that one has for God that exists in the, the soul of a person. A thirst that we're even unaware of that we have. Just think about this and how the Bible talks about this for a moment. In, in Psalm chapter 42, a, a verse that we all know, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, the living God. There's, there's references all over the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 12 speaks of drawing water from the wells of salvation. And I, in Jeremiah chapter 2, we read that the people have committed sins and forsaken God. The, the spring of living water. They have dug for themselves their own cisterns that could not even hold water. In Isaiah chapter 44, God promises that he will put water on a dry and thirsty land, speaking spiritually. In Isaiah 55, come, all who you are thirsty, come to the waters. 
My favorite of these passages is Ezekiel 47. I won't take time to, to read it, but this, in this vision, Ezekiel is, is brought to the back of the temple and he sees this, this trickling of water flowing out from the temple and he's brought further and he's told to measure the water. And as he goes further, the water gets deeper and deeper. It starts as a, a trickle and then it's ankle deep and then it's knee deep and then waist deep and then it was a, a river that he couldn't even pass through. And on the banks of the river, there were trees and, and living things finding the, the source of their life in the river. And then in verse 9, we read this. Perhaps my favorite verse. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish for this water goes there, and the waters of this sea may become fresh so that everything will live where the river goes. Another one is Revelation chapter 7, verse 17. It's in the New Testament, but just the same. This is the verse you probably recognize that speaks of the God uh, wiping away every tear from their eyes. But right before that, we read this. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What a remarkable text, right? Life is found in, in Christ. But not only that, he satisfies so that there will be no more tears. Well, that's satisfaction, isn't it? The scripture is filled with this language that gives this great imagery of our great thirst for God that he alone can satisfy the spiritually thirsty soul. The woman, though, didn't understand what Jesus was speaking of. He was speaking of this living water that we're told of in the scriptures, this fresh living water that satisfies uh, not the physical body, but the soul. In fact, we try to, to fill our lives with many things that satisfy. We look to fame, money, power, sex, all those things only satisfy for a time. I, I want you to notice one more thing here before we leave this story for today. And, and this is an important in the story, and I don't want you to, to miss it, right? If we, if we left off in verse 10, Jesus says, if you knew the gift of, of God and who it was that asked you, you would have asked for a drink and, and asked him and he would give you living water. That's important, but we must not miss the point that comes up in verse 14, where Jesus says, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. A spring. Notice that Jesus here isn't speaking of well water. He's speaking of, of water, not just water that's always there. Well water is always there. This isn't that. That's part of it, but this is water that is springing up. It's the difference between a spring and a well. Just think about this for a moment. Say you brought some, bought some property and were going to, to build a house on it. The property had a, a well on it that you didn't want. So you go and you fill the well with dirt. You cover it up and you leave and you come back the next day to start your construction on your house. All is fine. But say you bought some property that had a spring on it. And you didn't want the spring, so you just covered up the spring with dirt and you left and you came back the next day to start construction. What would have happened? Well, there would be a stream back where there was a stream before because the spring would spring up. What the Lord Jesus is saying here is that he's putting a, a spring within the life of anyone that comes to him. The spring is, is eternal and, and free. And here's another thing. For those that have this spring in them, if there's truly a spring of life within you, you will not be able to, able to cover it up with dirt. 
You can't bury it and move on. It will always be there bubbling up. I don't want you to get lost in the imagery here, but I think you understand what I'm saying. That, that Jesus is promising this woman an eternal spring of life within her. When I was a, a child, I placed my, my faith in Jesus Christ. I'm not exactly sure when that happened. I, I think I know. But looking back on my life, it was obvious to me that as a young child, I was, I was saved. It wasn't just that I, I prayed a prayer because my mom and dad wanted me to, to pray a prayer. Praying prayers doesn't save anybody. There was real belief there. And when I look back, I, I see that childlike faith. I, I truly believed and I saw that God was active in my life, answering prayers. I remember God doing some pretty amazing things. In fact, I never doubted. But at the same time, as I got older, I, I started to rebel. Not because I turned away, not because I didn't believe. To be honest, I, I believed. I, and I didn't want to deny that. I just wanted to bury that spring for a while. I, I just didn't want to think about the things of God that kept bubbling up. So I kept burying it. Thinking about, I didn't want to think about what God wanted me to do. I wanted to go off with my friends and I wanted to do what I wanted to do. I wanted to have fun. I wanted to have the same fun that they were having. I wanted to live my own life. But I believed. I never wanted to not believe. And as I look back on those years, and there was quite a few of them, there were many times that that spring came bubbling up through the dirt. I remember times of great conviction, times in which God would bring things into my life that would point me back to Him. They would be just, it was like somebody screaming, you need to, to repent, you need to get right, you need to come back. And after a time, I would just grab a shovel and I would start burying the spring again. What happens when a spring comes bubbling up through dirt? What do you get? You get muddy water. The spring isn't producing muddy water. But it's because we keep trying to, to bury it. Our, our life then just becomes a, a muddy mess. Sometimes we speak of this whole experience differently. We speak of Christians that are running from God. I think that's how a lot of people would have described me for several years in my life as running from God. And they would be right, but I didn't see myself that way. I didn't see myself as running from God. I never stopped believing. But I was putting dirt over a spring and my life was full of muddy water. There are two kinds of people. There are people that have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They've, they knew that only He could satisfy, that He is the, the remedy for sin in our life, that only He can make us right before God, that He can cleanse us from unrighteousness. These people are the ones that have this spring of eternal water uh, welling up to eternal life in their life that God promises here. That only happens through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Then there are people who are lost. We talked about that last week. There's no spring there. There's no life. There's no, there's no hope outside of Jesus Christ. But in thinking about that first group, doesn't it seem foolish that the same person that would know that only God satisfies, that only God is the remedy to our sin problem. Doesn't it seem foolish that that same person that knows all of those things are, are true would try and cover up that spring? They would put dirt on that spring and try to cover it up, and try to bury it. But we've all done that. We all have, to one degree or another. I would venture to say that some of us are doing it right now. Some of us have been doing it for years, like I did. They're trying not to think about the things of God. They're trying to go their own way in some respect. They don't think it's a big deal because they think they still believe. 
had a pastor growing up that said, and it wasn't his own, but he said this, and it always stuck. Sin takes us further than we want to go, keeps us longer than we want to stay, and costs us more than we want to pay. Very true in my own life. What started out is just not wanting to think about things, just wanting to go have fun, took me a lot further than I wanted to go. The second London Baptist Confession of Faith says it this way in chapter 17. says, And although they, the believer, may, through the temptation of Satan, the world, the prevalence of corruption remaining in them, and the neglect of the means of their preservation fall into grievous sins. Christians can sin, in other words. And for a time, they can continue in sin. And whereby they can occur God's displeasure. They can grieve the Holy Spirit. They can come to have their graces and comforts impaired. They can have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded. They can hurt and scandalize others and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. Speaking of Christians... Because they're putting dirt over the the spring. And if the confession left there and stopped there, it would seem like the Christian could actually bury that spring and give in to the temptations of Satan and the world and their own corruption. They could sin greatly, they could know that, that God is displeased, His Spirit grieved. Their conscience could be so seared that they wouldn't care. Their hearts would get hard. They would hurt others. They would take advantage of others. They would fall underneath the judgment of God for their sins. And if the confession ended there, it would seem like this person buried the spring. But the spring stopped bubbling but it didn't actually well up to eternal life as Jesus promised the woman at the well. But the confession adds this. Yet. Or but. I, I, love, I love that. Yet shall they renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ to the end. If, if somebody truly has that spring there, it will, be, it will come bubbling up. And in the end, they will repent. They will come back. There's two groups of people. There's the Christian. And although they may try to bury the spring, ultimately, they will be brought to repentance. What a glorious picture. That for the true believer, no matter how much they try and bury that spring, it will become bubbling through and be brought to a point when God again will grant them repentance. There might be a lot of baggage that comes along the way, but it'll happen. Let me just say one more thing. How do you tell? I mean, this brought up a question, right? There's two groups of people. How do you tell then if one is a believer or an unbeliever. You know, what if, the, what if the believer in question is a believer that's in rebellion? What if they're running, running from God? What if they're putting dirt over the, the spring and, and their life is just a muddy mess? How do, you, how do you know the difference? I heard somebody once say, well, I have a, a friend or a son that, that isn't living for the Lord, and, but it's all okay because when they were five, they prayed a prayer and I don't worry about it. I don't think that's right. I think the fact is we don't know if that person is a believer or not. Only God knows that. For the one running from God, for the one who's shoveling piles of dirt on that spring and the unbeliever, the remedy is exactly the same. Repentance. They need to hear the gospel. They need to respond to it. They need to repent and come back to the Lord or come to the Lord. 
the picture is exactly the same. Our mission doesn't change. We don't judge those things. We share the gospel. We leave the results to God. So, as we come to this story, in this, this text, we must ask ourselves, first of all, what person are we? Right? There's two types of people. Either you have this spring in your life, welling up to eternal life, or you don't. That spring comes through faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Trusting in what, what he did, that he died and, and bore your sins on the cross, that he paid for that, and in turn, he gave you his perfect righteousness. Believing in, in him. And there's people that don't. So you have to start there. And then you got to do some self-evaluation. Right? Because if you're in the later group and says, you know, I don't have that spring. Jesus is asking you. Right? He's asking you for a drink. He's saying, do, do you want this? Because if you, if you ask me for this, I will give it to you. I, I will not turn away anyone that comes to me wanting eternal life that puts their faith and trust in me. I'll grant you this. If you're a believer, you say, you know what, I, I am a believer. Then you, have, then you have some self-evaluation to do there, right? Where am I at? Is that spring that's welling up to eternal life in my heart, in my life, is it bubbling free? Am I being filled with the Holy Spirit? Am I accomplishing his purpose? Am I living for him in, in every aspect that I do? I mean, think, think about it this way. A little bit different uh, visual. If, if you put a fizzy tab in water, it just comes bubbling all over. The whole thing is permeated with, with bubbles, right? An, an effervescent tab. Is that how your life looks spiritually? Or are you shoveling dirt on the spring? You need to evaluate. And if that's the case, the Bible calls you to repentance, to get right. Thank you for listening to this sermon resource from BethelMBChurch.org. If you'd like to learn more about Bethel Church or find other resources, please visit our website at BethelMBChurch.org. Bethel Church exists to bring glory to God by promoting the joyful worship of Jesus Christ both here and abroad.